millennial consumers, and CPDs are learning fast, they're doing a very good job, some of them, in, in, in catching up to speed, of realizing that you can't just say these things. You really have to be authentic, not only in terms of the quality and the cultures that you're representing with world cuisines, but just as importantly with your sourcing standards. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we're going to dive into the world of food as we spend time talking with Adnan Durrani, who is the CEO and founder of Saffron Road Foods and one of the most accomplished entrepreneurs in the world of natural foods. Adnan, thank you and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Dave. I'm really honored to be here. Oh, well, thank you. Well, before we get into the amazing story that is Saffron Road, I want to start with your entrepreneurial journey. What led you to the natural food and beverage space as both an entrepreneur and as an investor? You know, I think it was kind of an epiphany I had. I came from the dark side. Uh, I was on Wall Street for many years. And back in the go-go 80s, the original crash, uh, I decided that I wanted to leave the industry and do something. You know, I, I saw at the height of malfeasance in the industry, I felt I wanted to go into some other area that was more socially responsible. And there were a number of mentors and folks that I really give a lot of credit for guiding me in that direction, one of whom is Gary Hirschberg from Stonyfield Farms. You know, he introduced me to a group called Social Venture Network, which included Ben Jerry's. I mean, Ben Cohen, certainly from Ben and Jerry's, and Eileen Fisher. And there were a bunch of entrepreneurs that I embraced over 30 years ago that were building socially responsible enterprises. And the beautiful thing about the natural organic food business, especially back then, was it was truly disruptive in terms of its social impact. It still is. And that was one of the few areas I saw where I could... Uh, not only focus on a triple bottom line business, but also create a business and an enterprise that had an impact on social good. And so that was kind of my journey 30 years ago and uh, stuck to it ever since. Oh, that's awesome. And can you talk about some of those ventures that you got involved in in those early days? Because there's some pretty sure. remarkable brand names in there. Thank you. Uh, when we, my wife and I started many years ago, Vermont Pure Spring Water, which we built to the second largest bottled water company in the Northeast. It was a, a really uh, a trying venture because, uh, you know, there's an old saying, how do you make a million dollars in the wine business? Well, you start with $10 million, And uh, I thought hey, water would be so easy. It was a very tough business, actually. And being on the investment side, I didn't realize how tough it is to be on the operating side and to make the trains run on time. So I really cut my teeth in the beverage side by building that brand and understanding all the, the tenements around it. And that was uh, you know, something that really schooled me in terms of distribution, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of operations. And then I was also involved in being a, a partner early on, investment partner with Gary in Stonefield Farms. Uh, was very fortunate to be involved in that venture. When we started with it, it was a really small company and ended up selling it to Gary did a great job negotiating a sale to Danon in three phases. We were one of the first uh, ever CP brands that sold to CPG a minority interest with various rights to, to sell the majority over time. And, and that was an amazing venture because it was around 60 million when, you know, when Danon came in with their first phase of purchase and it was about 400 million by the time Danon completely uh, owned, owned uh, Stonyfield. So that was quite, quite a nice upside. And again, that was, we entered yogurt back in 93 as an investment when nobody was focusing on yogurt. Everybody thought, 
yogurt was for people from like me from India or Pakistan or Eastern Europe that Americans would never eat it and yuck kids hate it and we felt very strongly that wasn't the case we felt that the trend for you know real bacteria not just gelatin the brands out there didn't have really healthy options in yogurt just like when we launched bottled water there were really very few bottled water companies around and we were told by executives even the chairman of Coco it's a foolish idea Americans will never drink bottled water but I kind of done my own research on it wrote my own white paper on it and I felt that we would eventually match European consumption and today we're actually above European consumption of bottled water in in US so that's generally I've looked at Europe for my trends and I look out 10 or 15 years to say you know is that possible here on this in in America or not by looking at the trends overseas and seeing what's you know what's what's dynamic and what's what can possibly catch on here so that's a perfect segue to your new journey which is 10 years in the making as you look overseas once again can you talk about Saffron Road's journey and how the brand has evolved over the last 10 years Absolutely. You know, I, I uh, saw that the halal market and sector was growing dramatically overseas. As a matter of fact, the halal industry overseas is over $2 trillion now. I mean, of course, in, in many over 100 countries. But the growth, especially in Western Europe, was quite phenomenal 10 years ago. And then I looked at the demographic in the U.S. and I said, wait a minute, this is a interesting you know, demographic because the American Muslims in the U.S. are very much unlike the European Muslims. They're very educated. One out of five American Muslim households has an MD or PhD in it, according to Pew, which makes them the second most educated household in America after the Jewish household. And also, they're they're quite affluent. Uh, they have 40% higher uh, disposable income than the average American, and they're very young. I mean, 80% of them are under the age of 35. I mean, it's a very strong millennial demographic. That's a marketer's dream. It's about you know anywhere from four million to eight million Americans that have no dietary options whatsoever. There is no halal brand, national brand, ever uh, in U.S. And so when I looked at that and I said, there's a strong demographic there, but if we're going to, you know, there's obviously a need for them. There's enormous amount of demand. There's no supply. So right away, that's from a business point of view, a great market to go into. But also, I felt that the options that were available in halal in U.S. And even to some degree in Europe, were not healthy. They weren't organic. They weren't natural. They weren't antibiotic-free. They weren't grass-fed. So I said, well, you know, if we could produce a brand that a really spoke to those higher values around sustainable farming and around humanely raised livestock, but at the same time also uh, was a brand with a broader appeal to the natural organic consumer, and also had a social impact because I felt that there was millions of American consumers out there, but not just American Muslims, but many others that felt disenfranchised currently uh, back then, that that's what we wanted to build. So when we started to look at that demographic and that focus, a lot of folks told us, hey, why are you focusing on millennials? Remember, this is 10 years ago. And my answer always was, well, we're not just focused on millennials. I think aspirational baby boomers will always be a huge percentage of our business and the demographic that would be attracted to Zafron Road. But I feel that, you know, 10 years ago, I felt at some point millennials are going to get older. They're going to start getting married. They're going to start having kids. They're going to want to buy homes. So their demographics and their needs and their buying purchase behavior will change dramatically. And that's a demographic where even though everyone's telling us they have no money, they're not brand loyal, and wake up America's you know, an aging population, you should be betting on the baby boomer population, I felt very strongly that 
the millennials would eventually have strong demand for natural organic foods because even though they didn't have higher income than baby boomers, 47% even 10 years ago of their disposable income was spent on natural organic foods. So I knew that there was a new awareness among this millennial group and we got lucky. You know, the, the tsunami that came with the demographic shift to millennials in the last three years took our little rowboat up. Um, and, you know, Goldman Sachs now says the millennial generation is the wealthiest generation in American history, over $1.2 trillion in buying power. They're growing at a very fast rate, and they're very discerning about their food choices. So, you know, we were fortunate that we, we you know, hitched our buggy to that to that uh, group, and, and, and certainly it's the one that uh, everyone is trying to appeal to now. Yes. You know, well, you might say luck. You did very intentional things to get there. That is amazing that you were able to accomplish and it took a lot of foresight. Can you talk about some of those strategies of not just going after that consumer, but how did you think about targeting millennials and what strategic choices did you make in living that and piecing that together? Sure. So when we launched originally, you know, our business has three segments to it, frozen meals, ready to eat frozen, natural organic meals, and then um, organic snacks, uh, chickpea snacks, you know, the lentil and, and chickpea area is something we're pretty big in plant-based protein. And then the other is ambient, uh, you know, shelf-stable meals and simmer sauces. So the, the real le- the real beachhead for us is frozen entrees. So when we entered the frozen entree business 10 years ago, there were no options in natural organic. It was very few. I mean, Whole Foods, think about it, the biggest natural organic retailer in the world by far. Nobody in Europe comes close. They have over 2,000 SKUs 10 years ago in Frozen. Not a single one was antibiotic-free. <laughs> and I used to, you know, when we launched in 2010, the Frozen industry, the Frozen entree industry, was in a complete death spiral. It was in a nosedive. I mean, Lean Cuisine lost $200 million that year. Healthy Choice, which is owned by Conagra, was down 60%. Kashi, which is owned by Kellogg, was down 70%. I mean, the Frozen brands out there were diving, and you know, Pinnacle was about to sell its whole portfolio. I mean, uh, Nestle was about to sell its whole Frozen portfolio to Pinnacle, the rumors said back then. So what was happening was, we looked at that industry, we looked at that sector, and we said, you know, it's not that there's a problem with Frozen. The problem is that, you know, the the products that are being offered in Frozen are horrible. You know, they're very not clean label, they're belly fillers, and nobody's really innovated in that category, especially in ethnic, you know. So we said, well, let's, let's study the ethnic category and see what's really uh, has a strong affinity. We felt Indian and Thai had very strong affinity among natural organic consumers, but there was very few offerings. There wasn't a single antibiotic-free one. So we launched the first a antibiotic-free entrees into Whole Foods, Indian and Thai, and we also um, were the first certified humane entree in the world. In other words, we made sure that the farms that were supplying our production facilities with protein or meat, that they have to be certified humane in terms of their animal standards. So we felt that if we were going to bring something to market, not only did it have to be clean label, not only did it have to have, you know, antibiotic-free uh, meat, but also no hormones used, no artificial ingredients, very clean label, but also that we wanted to partner with chefs with very high culinary excellence. And it had to have the wow factor in terms of its culinary, you know, quality. And, and then third, it also had to have a social impact. And for us, part of the social impact is 
you know, making sure the livestock that we're sourcing are, use proper humane animal welfare standards, and also that we did third-party certifications. We didn't make self-claims on anything. So those were kind of our values. I always like to say Saffron Road is about, you know, we, we basically are promoting values for value, and it's about a journey to better, you know, a journey to better values around food, a journey to better values around the sustainable agricultural movement, a journey to better values around how we market and produce that food and the social impact we have on various communities by providing uh, these dietary requirements. So as a result of that, you know, that was kind of our value statement. We did it uh, because not because it's a marketing, uh, you know, statement, but more importantly, because it's what we felt strongly felt was important. And so we did that and millennials saw that they're very viral. They go on social media and uh, we're very digitally focused. And we spoke to them in those communities and they reacted and realized that, hey, here's a brand that really is authentic and authentic in terms of the ethnic meals that we're honoring, the cultures that they come from, but also authentic in terms of being clean label as well as appealing to their values around natural organic foods. So that really leads to kind of an interesting dilemma for a lot of the bigger companies and the big CPG. If millennials are craving these smaller authentic brands, but they're also craving authentic labeling and everything else, how can some of these big brands respond that that hasn't necessarily been how they built themselves and they can't change the fact they're billion-dollar businesses? Yeah, it's a serious problem. I mean, uh, if you look at uh, some of the brands, whether you know whether it's Nestle's Lean Cuisine or Conagra's Healthy Choice, I mean, you're a millennial consumer, and I know folks in, in Nestle would probably, unfortunately, probably reluctantly admit this. With a name like Lean Cuisine, a millennial consumer is not going to walk; they're going to run out the door. There's just a huge branding problem with them because of what they've been associated with over the years. So that's the first thing: is that the legacy brands at some of these larger CPGs have a serious branding issue. Some of them have rebranded nicely, like Conagra's done some nice renovation, we call it, of brands. So it is possible to do, but it's it's like Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill. It's, it's really difficult. Um, and there's an amazing study that came out a couple of years ago from Boston Consulting Group and, and, and A.C. Nielsen, and it said that 42% of the growth of the $800 billion food and beverage industry is coming from small brands like Saffron Road. of the $800 billion uh, industry's growth is coming from small brands. I mean, that's astounding. If you told me that, you know, six years ago or 10 years ago, uh, I'd tell you you have eight heads. I mean, it just was out of the thinking of anybody back then, you know. And so I've been around long enough to have seen enough cycles. I've never seen this kind of opportunity in my entire lifetime. So what that's saying is because of the information age, I think because of social media and the Internet, consumers are living in a 24-7, you know, information cycle, and they can very quickly find out which brands are really speaking truly and transparently to them and those are the brands they support. So I think the big CPGs have to be very careful to make sure it's not just good packaging, but that what's inside the package speaks to that consumer in particular. And secondly, I think there's a lot of brands that are authentically inspired, but they not may, may not actually be authentically ethnic, right? And the nice thing about Saffron Road is because we truly honor the cultures. When we're when we're producing a Thai product, we're actually sourcing Thai green curry from Thailand. When we're producing an Indian product, we're actually getting the highest kind of tola silka 
basmati rice from India and importing and bringing it in. We're making everything fresh in our facilities here. So it's really small batches and it's really high, like way beyond even restaurant quality. And that's something that we decided from the beginning that it had to have that wow factor. That's not easy for a large CPG to do, but that is what we, you know, or what we shine at. That's really what our calling is. And so as a result, we are truly authentic. We're very transparent about our sourcing standards. We're one of the only brands. Matter of fact, uh, you know, both John Mackey and Walter Robert Whole Foods many times have complimented us and complimented me and said, look, we really owe you a lot for what you've done for Whole Foods. And I said, oh, you owe us? We owe you for what you did for us. And he said, no, actually, you know, when you came in, you didn't just say you were gluten-free. You made sure to get a third-party auditor to say that. You didn't just say you were halal. You got the best certifier for halal to come and certify your products. And same with non-GMO. We were the first non-GMO verified entree in the world. So we really went to the arduous, strenuous process of making sure we had these third-party auditors certify our claims. We just we didn't just make these self-claims, right? We weren't we weren't allowed the package to go out unless it had this third-party certification. So as a result, Whole Foods. This is what I was told by the Whole Foods executives that many other brands decided to follow us because our standards were much higher than Whole Foods when we entered. And as a result, Whole Foods whole chain benefited because a lot of brands then went to that standard. So I think that. With millennial consumers, um, and, and CPDs are learning fast and doing a very good job, some of them, in, in, in catching up to speed of realizing that you can't just say these things. You really have to be authentic, not only in terms of the quality and the cultures that you're representing with World Cuisines, but just as importantly with your sourcing standards. So I want to dive into that dynamic you just talked about with Whole Foods a little bit more. You know, it used to be the advantage of big CPG companies was that they they had this relationship with retail that they didn't have to pitch to get a meeting. They just always had their standing meetings with their buyers and everything else. You know, yes, it's very part of you. Not many people realize that. That's true. Yeah. And you've helped change that. And you've seen it probably on the negative in your early days when you were building, you know, Vermont Pure and then Stonyfield of how tough it was. How do you think the upstart brands like Saffron today are changing the retailer and CPG dynamics? Yeah, that's a very good question, uh, David. I think what's happened is that you're seeing the, you know, about six, seven, eight years ago, your mainstream retailers and mainstream stores, as well as your mass retailers, saw that the organic industry was growing at a tremendous rate, you know, organic and natural foods, and they didn't want to miss out. And they didn't want to be boxed in just as some mainstream conventional retailer that didn't offer those products. So you started to see a big shift, and they started to invest a lot of money into creating aisles appealing to those consumers as well because there's something called the bleed rate or the walkout rate. If they walk into, for example, a Walmart and you don't see Saffron Road there, 30% of the time you may just walk out of that Walmart, go across the street to Kroger and buy it. So because of the bleed rates that they were analyzing, they realized, holy geez, we're missing out on this whole organic revolution. So Kroger, Walmart, well, actually Kroger, Costco, as well as a little bit Trader Joe's, but mainly Kroger and Costco, big time, six, seven, eight years ago, decided to create these whole aisles. And even Publix did it with the Greenwise uh, retailer, the segment they had. And so they created all these aisles, and, and so did Ahol, which is Stop and Shop in our area. They created these sections in the store that were just natural sections to make sure they captured that consumer. Recently, we just got uh, slotted into Walmart, into f- over 4,000 stores. It's a huge launch, and we've been doing extremely 
extremely well in Walmart, which is kind of a surprise. But the reason is Walmart has now dedicated. They brought in a young millennial team to run their natural organic uh, aisles, and they're spending over $500 million the next five years creating a whole natural organic section, not just frozen, I mean, throughout the, all of the Walmart store. And so that's, they realize and recognize that when you're seeing, you know, 10 to 20% growth or organic foods, and in general, the food industry is only growing at one or 2% at best, to get, you know, five times or 10 times the growth they're experiencing in that aisle is something that they can't miss. You know, that's something that it would be malpractice for them not to have a section of natural organic foods in their store. So we are seeing that now. We're seeing uh, a lot of the big retailers doing a really great job. I mean, Kroger and Costco especially are doing a phenomenal job. And Walmart's recent launch into this category has been, you know, quite exceptional. It's been surprisingly positive on the upside for us as well. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So I'm curious on your view of when you talk about the natural food section of these stores. Before the call, we talked about how I'm in Cincinnati and when I leave my house, I can go right to one Kroger and left to another Kroger. And one of them has their traditional natural food section with the aisles and the frozen. And the other, they've chosen to actually blend natural throughout the store. So the category doesn't separate between the two. What do you think we're going to see as an evolution? Will natural just become the main aisles like that store? Or is there a value of still having this separate section? That's a very good question. And this is something that you know we debate internally among our team depending on the region, the retailer, and the category that we're marketing into that retailer. So I think that for the frozen entree category, it's always good to have a separate section of natural organic. Like we do really well when we're in the same door with Evol and Amy's and kind of our sister and brother brands. You know, when we're with, we're, we're, at the, we're in the natural door with peer brands that are natural organic, that's a destination for the natural organic consumer, even if they're in the mainstream retailer. So we find we do a lot better in that aisle. But if the if it turns out that the retailer only has, you know, 10 frozen doors and they're going to put all the natural brands in two doors, then they may squeeze us right next to the conventional. And that's okay because we know that our consumer is going to walk down that aisle anyway, and, and, and that's where they're going to look for our product. But in general, for frozen, I think since there's less frozen doors in most retailers, the frozen space tends to be 10 or 15% of the space max. So it's, it's very, you know, prime real estate. I think it's, it's best if that section is kept separate in the same aisle, but a separate door so that those brands can continue to thrive and, and draw consumers to that door. In snacks and, and those areas, especially simmer sauces or ethnic ambient meals, we find we do really well when we're in the conventional area. Because that's where often you're nowadays, you know, the new normal in ethnic, like chicken tikka masala is almost like vanilla ice cream in ethnic, right? I mean, everyone's aware of it. So a lot of your mainstream consumers are going to the ethnic aisle 
looking for world cuisines and they're looking for adventure. And they may not be hardcore whole foods consumers or natural organic consumers, but they are consumers looking, especially millennials, for that adventurous meal or for that you know new flavor that they'll find in the mainstream aisle. So I, I think it depends on the product. I think when it comes to snacks, we, we always try to talk to the retailer about them creating a better for you or healthy nutritional snack section, and that's where we thrive, especially with our chickpea snacks. You know, we've done that with Owl, we've done that with Publix, uh, where we do well when we're in kind of the better for you snack section. That makes total sense. So I want to talk a little bit about the pendulum that we've seen with, you know, new brands over the last, call it, decade. That obviously when you launched, it was tough to do a frozen brand direct to consumer. So retail was your your partnership. We've now seen over the last few years, everything was D to C. And if you weren't going direct consumer, you weren't launching a brand. And now we're seeing the pendulum start swinging back where entrepreneurs are really realizing the partnership that you saw with Whole Foods of that close partnership can really bring a lot of value to a brand. What advice do you give to entrepreneurs, both as an investor and just as a fellow entrepreneur, of how they follow that path of working with retailers versus going direct to consumer? Sure. Um, I think that's that's a really good question. And, you know, something I'm big on and our whole team here is very passionate about is something I call channel integrity. And what I mean by that, and that's something that for 30 years uh, I've been proud to make sure that we honor, which is that, you know, work with a particular retailer that really shares your values and that you can build a long-term relationship with and make sure you're honorable to the channel that brought you to the market. So, for example, we were in Whole Foods initially and then Kroger, and we had a lot of other retailers, you know, seven or eight years ago approach us, including, you know, Walmart, some of the big ones, and we refused to go into them. We just felt that we didn't want to, it, it, Whole Foods and Kroger, the ones that brought us to the party, they were really the, the, or the partners that were betting on us when we were nothing. We wanted to make sure that we were ethically you know, tied to them and we weren't going to sell product at a much cheaper price somewhere else just to get a Hail Mary on top line with sales. So I think you know, being core to your values around your integrity with each retailer is really important. And that's the first thing. The second thing is focus on a small region. You know, Focus on an area where you think you can be successful. Even if it's only 50 stores or 100 stores to start, prove yourself. You know, Often, if you can prove yourself in a small region with a Whole Foods, especially, or with a Wegmans, or even with a Kroger, and maybe just pick a couple of areas or regions where you think you'd have some good affinity for your product line, and then show the success there, even if it's only with three or four products. And when you can go and show that data to the re- to a retailer, then go back to Whole Foods corporate or go back to Costco and say, hey, look, in these 30 stores of Whole Foods or these 100 stores or this one region, I'm doing X amount of sales per store per week in this period. I know that if you distributed me out to you know 200 more stores, this is what I could potentially do. You know, that's what buyers live and die by. They live and die by that data. And if you could show them data, even at a very small level and a regional level that shows that you're flying off the shelf, they'd be very open, I think, to then realizing that this is a product that could do well uh, nationally. So I think that's the way to start. Is start. That's how we did it. You know, you start. We were lucky Whole Foods kind of distributed us nationally from the beginning, but we made sure to prove ourselves wherever we were in the various regions before we scaled out with a larger product line. So I want to dive into and some of the trends we're seeing today. So if you look, you know, over the last really two years, there's been a lot of chatter about plant-based diets. Do you think this is going to continue and, you know, will people be eating less meat in 
2020, 2030. Where do you see this going? I'm a very biased uh, sort of uh, spokesman on this issue. <laughs> so I'm probably not the best person to speak to, but I'll give you my, my take on it. Having been around a while and seen these kind of cycles before, you know, I think my gut instinct is that 10 years from now, we'll look back and this will look very similar to the Atkins craze or to the craze around soy, which, you know, died off when people found out that soy wasn't necessarily good for your health. Um, my concern here is this. First of all, people confuse what's going on in the plant-based protein in the meat alternative market. It's really not being marketed necessarily to vegans and vegetarians. That's a very tiny slice of the market, you know. It's really being marketed to flexitarians, in my opinion, or meat eaters who are looking to have a plant-based protein diet a couple of days a week, like we have meatless Mondays at our house, right? So I think that's a good market. I think that market is going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to do well. But I think the, there's been a lot of irrational exuberance around that sector because it's still 47% of the growth, for example, in entrees is protein. You know, it's by far the biggest chunk, about 50 billion of the frozen sections are protein, uh, protein based right now. So, I mean, meat based, you know, so even though you're seeing huge percentage increases, and I do think it will increase by three or four or 500% the next five years, the plant-based protein meat alternative market, it's still a small slice of the overall market. Americans are still primarily meat eaters. 70% of whole food shoppers are meat eaters. So there's a bit of a misconception, as in my opinion, as to you know how much growth you can get out of this. And I think many retailers are making a huge mistake in creating enormous amount of freezer space for some of the meat alternatives without realizing you know what can happen, say, three or four years from now. That, that would be my take on it. I see, like, we do have vegetarian and vegan items, but they're real. They're real clean label items. They're using real sprouts, real vegetables, you know, we're not bringing in protein isolates, you know, and I think that's one of the issues is that a lot of these plant-based protein alternatives are actually technology meat developed in a lab, whether it's with protein isolates or highly processed beef protein. It's not necessarily that healthy. It might be great for the environment, but it's not necessarily that healthy. I'm not even sure if it's really natural or organic. I think we could have a debate on that. And a, a lot of it tends to be expensive, and it, some of it has very high sodium levels. So I just think there needs to be a conscious kind of assessment as to, you know, what are these meat plant these uh, meat alternative products and there's some really good ones out there and then there's some that are highly processed. I think that's why when you look at, you know, somebody like uh, uh, Shake Shack or some of them, you know, Danny Meyer, or some of the more uh, mindful chefs, they're not allowing them into their franchises because they realize that they can, if you go and have a shroom burger at Shake Shack, that's the real meat, you know, that's real plant-based protein as opposed to getting some processed pea protein in there. So I, th I think there's going to be a second coming, a second phase where people start to realize what's really in some of these products and then there'll, maybe there'll be some more education around them and you may not see as much exuberance as you're seeing now. Yeah, well, it goes back to the clean labels that you talked about and why it was so important in your early days. It maybe hasn't been followed in that same way by some of the today's companies. Yeah, we get a lot of offers from, from you know, manufacturers saying, hey, why don't you launch a snack with 20 grams of protein and just put pea protein isolate in there? Or why don't you launch some plant-based protein entrees the way everybody else is and use, you know, protein isolates? Um, and, of course, our team, especially our chef, uh, you know, puts his foot down and says there's no way we will ever do that because it just doesn't fit our brand funnel, which is about authenticity and transparency and clean label, and our team just does not feel that that's clean label currently.
So on that note, you know, the the word authentic has become a little oversaturated saturated at time to your point earlier that some people say it, but don't really walk the talk. So as both a founder and an investor, how do you think brands can balance the tension of growth and maintaining authenticity as you have with, you know, Saffron and I'd argue with Stonyfield in a very big way? I think that you have to really make sure that you're pushing the envelope and, and not necessarily buying into some of the you know mainstream thinking around the shortcuts that are taken in our industry. I think at the end of the day, if you're really passionate about your values around the food system and creating clean label products, instinctively you know what's you know authentic and what isn't. You're right, it's a very trite and overused term, but I'd rather say think about the values around your brand. What values does it really represent? If you can be hardcore about those values, and hardcore doesn't mean it can't scale, of course it can scale, but if you can really be disruptive in terms of what you're trying to present and stand for, whether it's a yogurt, whether it's a water, whether it's a frozen entree or plant-based protein snack, I think that that's what consumers are looking for. They're looking to make sure that what they're consuming and what they're bringing to their families has some kind of point of difference that makes it you know very stands out from the crowd of the mainstream products. And I think most entrepreneurs that are in the natural organic food business they know what that what that you know what in their gut what is clean label and what is authentic and what's not. And I think that's where they just have to do a little bit of a head check and make sure that they're following their own values. That makes total sense. Well, it's really been a pleasure to spend the time. You know, Thank you for creating so many great brands over the years. They're ones we're frequently using on our household. So. Oh, thank you. I wish I could take credit, but it's really about the partners I've been lucky to be involved with, such as Gary Hirschberg and others, as well as the team that we have here at Saffron Road. It's just such a passionate team. I bless myself every day to come in and be able to work with such a great group of people. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure to watch, and uh, I can't wait to see what the fourth one's going to be that you, uh, you bring to the market. Okay. Thanks a lot, David. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.